This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this talk recorded at the NiceAce Heads Conference in November of 2018, NYU professor and independent school parent Dolly Chug discusses her most recent book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Dr. Chug blends stories and science in her talk to ask provocative questions such as, what does it even mean to be a good person? All right, you want to watch a video? You guys have been working hard. This one, all you got to do is just watch. If you've seen it before, sit back. Hi, I'm Richard. This is Sarah. And we're going to perform the amazing color-changing card trick with this blue-backed deck of cards. Now, the idea is very simple. I'm just going to spread the cards in front of Sarah and ask her to push any card towards the camera. Right, okay, let's see. I'm going to go for this card here. Okay. Now Sarah could have selected any card at all from the deck, but she selected the card which is now face down on the table. And what I'm going to ask her to do is show us which card she selected. Right, so the card that I chose was in fact the Three of Diamonds. The Three of Diamonds, okay, excellent choice. That card goes back into the deck. Now I'm just going to spread the cards face up on the table. Do a little click of the fingers. And you'll see that Sarah's card here has now got a blue back. Not particularly surprising. What's slightly more surprising is all of the other cards have got red backs. And that is the amazing color-changing card trick. Richard, this is Sarah, and we're going to perform the amazing color-changing card trick with this blue-backed deck of cards. Now the idea is very simple. I'm just going to spread the cards in front of Sarah and ask her to push any card towards the camera. Right, okay, let's see. I'm going to go for this card here. Okay. Now Sarah could have selected any card at all from the deck. But she selected the card which is now face down on the table. And what I'm going to ask her to do is show us which card she selected. Right, so the card that I chose was in fact the Three of Diamonds. The Three of Diamonds, okay, excellent choice. That card goes back into the deck. Now I'm just going to spread the cards face up on the table. Do a little click of the fingers. And you'll see that Sarah's card here has now got a blue back. Not particularly surprising, what's slightly more surprising is all of the other cards have got red backs. And that is the amazing color-changing card trick. All right. You guys are funny to watch during that, by the way. Okay, you got, being totally honest, how many saw all four the first time through? Three, two, one. Please join me with zero. Where are you? Thank you, my people. 
Zero. Why? Why did we see zero? We were looking at the cards. You were, you were doing what you were asked to do, weren't you? You weren't looking at your phone. You weren't daydreaming. You were looking at the cards. So what happened? You were looking at the cards, and then what happened? Give it to me. Go ahead. Say it a little louder so I can hear, and I'll repeat it. Everything goes out, out, everything else goes out of the picture. I was watching the cards and everything else kind of literally, I love your gesture about it, like literally sort of, you know, goes out of focus almost. So there's something about the noticing process that visually something was right in front of us and yet we didn't see it. Some of us did. A few of you saw a few things. It's possible if I had given you a chance to convince others in the room, there might have been a little bit of what? No, I was watching. I don't know what you're talking about. They doctor videos, you know, right? There could have been a little bit of that. So let's hold on to the experience you had as you watched that second video, the incredulousness of the noticing that happened. As we get into, let's see, we're going to go right here now. As we get into what I'm hoping is a good build, sorry, let me get presentation mode up. What I'm hoping is going to be a good build on the hard work you've been doing since yesterday. We're going to build on Robin D'Angelo's presentation with a little bit of how-to, some tools that you can use if you want to move forward with the work that you began with her, and some science. I'm trained as a social psychologist, so what I can bring into this is some of the the actual data and science behind some topics that you've been hearing about here and I'm sure outside of here around things like implicit bias. That's what we're going to do today. I want to begin with something I think as educators you're probably very familiar with. Carol Dweck's work on fixed versus growth mindset. As you know, fixed mindset, Dweck and colleagues, talks about a belief you have, an activated belief you have, that whatever level you're at in a particular skill, particular domain, that that's the level you're going to stay at. So if you think you're really funny, you imagine yourself to be really funny and no amount of additional effort or coaching would make you funnier. Or if you think you're a terrible athlete, nothing would change that. A fixed mindset. Now, in Carol Dweck's work, what they show is when we have a fixed mindset about a particular domain, that when we make mistakes, there's a very predictable pattern of what happens. Can we just shout out what you know about those patterns? What happens when a student has a fixed mindset about math and then makes a mistake? They give up, exactly, well-documented pattern. What else? I told you so, it reinforces their position. They cheat, particularly if they see themselves as good at math and have a fixed mindset. They will actually find other ways to look good at math to preserve that identity. Identity becomes really important in a fixed mindset because a mistake is a threat to your identity. Is this something you've seen in your work, in your school? Do you see the effects of fixed mindset in your students or your faculty? Yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. So this is really familiar. We don't have to go too deep into it. I just want to activate our, and remind us of what we already know. A lot of what we're going to talk about in my session today is stuff you already know, but we're going to bring it into the domain of diversity, inclusion, bias. How can we take what we already know and use it as tools in this, this more complicated work? So we already know about fixed mindset. No room for being a work in progress. Now let me tell you a little bit um, 
few examples. Imagine you're an instructor, you assign a reading, and then a student wants to know why you assigned a sexist reading. Imagine you use a case about the NYPD uh, stop and frisk policy, a HBS case, in fact, since I heard you were talking about that earlier, and a student calls you out for using that case. The examples go on and on. Observer says you're calling on men more than women. You're using cases that are overwhelmingly white male protagonists if you use cases. You assume a student's white only to be corrected by him that he's not white. You mispronounce students' names repeatedly even when corrected. Or you just don't say their names because it's uncomfortable to not know how to say it. You confuse two students of the same race, of the same body type, of the same, um, the both black male, both Asian females for each other when they look absolutely nothing alike. These are all me, every one of these. And this is just because I ran out of room and you know, bad, it would be bad presentation for him to make the font smaller. All me. Now imagine me in a fixed mindset, and a lot of times I was in a fixed mindset when these happened. Remember everything you just said happens when you're in a fixed mindset? Well, when I'm in a fixed mindset around issues of bias, diversity, inclusion, and any of these things happens, you can imagine the red zone I go in. But where would you rather I be when these things happen? It's a growth mindset. Oh, look, there was even more. <laughs> there was more. Student makes racist comment in class. So if I'm in a growth mindset, what are the things you know happen when, when I make mistakes? You got it? Tell me, yo. I learn. In fact, what we know from brain scans is that my brain activity is actually different. When I activate a belief that a skill is learnable, and then I make a mistake, I actually show different brain activity than when I'm in a fixed mindset. What else happens? Persist. I keep going when I make those mistakes. So I learn, I keep going. What else? I take risks. I'm not sure where the voice came from, but it was a thank you so much. Um, I take risks. And so many of you are working in schools where that's a really explicit part of what you're trying to get students to do, that we don't want to create students who aren't willing to take risks around learning, around helping, around giving. So the work of a growth mindset, a lot of it seems to center on mistakes. Well, in a way, that's amazing, because look, I make so many of them. This is like a really perfect setup for a growth mindset. Now, it seems like I have to continually be reminded of this. The, uh, the story I like to tell, if, if anybody's ever taken their kids to Disney, has anybody had this experience? If you have children, you've taken them to Disney. And so you wait in some really long line for something they really want to do. In this case, it was the animation workshop. And we get to the front of the line, and my whole plan was to kind of plant them in the little seats and then kind of my husband and I were just going to go off to the corner and like do our own, you know, 40 minutes of like adult time and then come back when they were done. But you know how Disney just like, before you know it, you're strapped into something and you thought it was just a seat, but now it's moving. And now I'm in the front row of the animation workshop. I'm like right there in front of animation guy and I'm drawing Olaf. And the problem is I can't draw. Like I can't draw. I've never, I'm 50 years old. I have enough data to tell you I cannot draw. And yet, what do I tell my kids all the time? What are they not allowed to say? I know, right? So regretting that choice. So now I've got to like model for them that I can draw if I try. I can learn how to, if I have a growth mindset. 
So, <laughs> yeah, um, I drew that. Thank you, thank you, that's really good. Thank you, and I wanna, uh, there's a pointer, I don't know why I'm going closer to show you the pointer. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you see the grid lines? Yeah, so some of you may have already known this, I didn't. It turns out that's an important feature if you're learning how to draw, as you break it into a grid and you like, you start in the block. You don't just try to draw the whole thing, you start in the block. So in my fake activation of a growth mindset, and I, I will grant you I had no intention of actually trying during this animation workshop, but even my fake activation led to this. It led to incredible progress within 20 minutes just by learning that I can break something down, that I can use grid lines. So part of what we're gonna do today, I mean, you're probably more advanced on issues of diversity, inclusion, whiteness, bias, all that, than I was on drawing. But wherever you are, today's, and I, the idea here is let's just keep building on it. Let's keep building on it. Let's find some grid lines that you can take with you. In order to do that, we're gonna start with a quick exercise. You're gonna do it with someone at your table. The ideal is, if, you're, if there's anyone at your table who you know less, I would love for you to pair with them. If you're both comfortable standing, please stand and face each other. If you need to sit, that's great too. Here's what you're gonna do. You're each going to share an example of when you showed a growth mindset. I wanna be clear, this does nothing to do with diversity, inclusion, bias, any of those things. It can be math, it can be drawing, it can be soccer, it can be anything. An example of when you showed a growth mindset and then you're also gonna share an example of when you showed a fixed mindset. Start percolating on what your two examples are, but don't tune out yet, because I have a very specific instruction for how you're going to share and how you're going to listen. If you and I are partnered together, do you mind standing for me to help? Thank you. Sorry, she has very fresh breath, so it's perfect. <laughs> Yes, because she knew we were going to be, yeah. So Andrea and I are together, and I am sharing with Andrea my example of when I've shown a growth mindset. Andrea, and we're going to go this way so, so folks can see us, Andrea's going to listen for, I'm probably going to give you around 45 seconds to a minute, and she is not going to interrupt at all, at all. No uh-huh, no questions, nothing. I mean, you can be human, you can, you know, kind of give me a little something, but, but there's no, oh my God, that happened to me. That's really, wow, I think you're really good at that. No, got it? Nothing but listening. Now, I might run out of things to say, and that's, of course, when a polite person would jump in and, like, pick up the ball in the conversation. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea's not going to do that. We're going to let me sit with my thoughts and not jump in. And then we're going to switch. So this is gonna happen one, two, three, four times because we're gonna each do a growth mindset and we're gonna each do a fixed mindset. But we're not gonna do that in front of all these good people. Well, we might, do you want to? No, I mean, we, we're good together. I feel like this could work, no? Both from Long Island, I love it. Thank you so much, we're good, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, all right. Let me, before we, before we start breaking up, I wanna hear any questions, anything I haven't been clear about the procedure. Everybody feels clear? So I'm gonna just yell over you when time is up. 
We're gonna do one minute, one minute, one minute, one minute. We're gonna start with fixed mindset. Get your example ready. When you listen, you listen without interruption. Go ahead, stand up, find a partner, someone you know less at your table. Thank you. Yeah, uh, either one, fixed. Oh, growth, growth, growth. starting with growth, growth. but right, go, so it growth. doesn't matter, as long as you hit them all. You should have each done, yeah, so now growth. Now growth. Yep. You're now on growth.
Okay. Thank you. I invite you back to your seats. Welcome back. So we did two things just now. One of them was we took your intellectual knowledge of growth and fixed mindset, which you already have, but we brought in the affective component. We, we allowed you to go into, back into those experiences and remember what it actually feels like in a growth versus fixed mindset. So we've, we've got that front of, front of mind now. And we did a second thing. We worked on a particular listening muscle, a kind of awkward listening muscle. Let me ask you, what did it feel like to be listened to in this way? Affirming. Show me, raise a hand so I can see where that came from. Oh, Jackie, it felt affirming. What made it feel affirming? Hmm. Yeah. So, that is a powerful emotion right there, to feel affirmed in that kind of way. Other responses, what it felt like to be listened to right here. It felt good to explain your fixed mindset. So, so to, and, and the listening part of it contributed to how it felt good? Okay, yeah, cathartic. Oh, I know, I know, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, exactly, thank you, right behind you. Yes. Yeah. So that's 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 a very. Do you hear everybody agreeing with you there that there was something artificial in the way I set you up here? That was on purpose. And let me explain the why of why this felt so artificial. Not why it felt so artificial. That's obvious. But why it's good to feel that artificial. In normal conversations, we back and forth. We give each other a little something. We jump in. We ask a question, and and we dance. Right? We usually, people, unless you're, this is live streaming? Never mind. I was, I was going to say something about a particular relative. I'm not going to say it. Um, <laughs> I just remembered we're live streaming. Um, but but, but in, in most conversations, people talk for 45 seconds, a minute, maybe 90 seconds before they get something back. People who study conversations show that it's that kind of dance. And in here, I took the dance away from you, right? But it felt weird, and yet I'm hearing it was affirming. It was cathartic to be listened to in that way. So what do we want to add to our repertoire and remind ourselves of? The importance of creating space just for listening. Now, what does that have to do with the topic we're here to do, to work on today? Yeah. It's respectful. Thank you. What else? Thank you. I'm, I, I might be responding to someone who feels they're not listened to and creating that respectful space for them to be listened to. I have a hand right there. I'm not centering myself. Now imagine what happens. I, I'm sure this never happens to you guys. But if somebody's in your office telling you something you don't want to hear that's negative about you or your school. Does that ever happen? <laughs> no. No. Imagine, because you have a lot of practice in that kind of conversation, what it feels like in that moment 
where you do feel you need to protect, defend, maybe center yourself. And imagine that you had to do what we just did in this weird, awkward exercise in that moment, right? That would really feel, feel artificial. But what does it do for the noticing skill that we started the session talking about when you create that kind of space? I want you to consider the possibility that if we're not going to see everything that's right in front of us, that maybe we're going to need the help of others to point it out. If the card trick can go right past us, what else can go right past us? And should you have to do all the noticing all by yourself? Is that even a reasonable expectation? I'm going to argue no. It's an impossible expectation to put on any human being, particularly human beings who have the, the, the level of cognitive load you have every single day. So where is the noticing going to come from? How are you going to create this respectful space, the affirming space, and the cathartic space for that kind of noticing? It might be through listening that in some ways feels a little bit artificial because it just stretches out the space someone has to create a noticing moment. So we're going to add that to our repertoire. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. It's taking an interest. I remember the beginning of your name, Tree. Tree Ann, thank you. Tree Ann, remind us that we're taking an interest in the other person, that we're not just saying we care, but we are actually caring enough to not center our own reactions. This is really hard. And it's going to get even harder as we get into the kind of topics that you talked about yesterday and that we're going to continue to talk about today. Thank you for that, Triam. So that brings us to this work of being a good person. The, the subtitle of my book is the, the person you mean to be, how good people fight bias. Here's the problem with being a good person. And there is a problem with it, let me tell you. Good people don't make mistakes. Good people are free of bias. Whoops. Good people are not sexist, not racist, not homophobes, none of the bad isms, right? Because it's either or. You heard about the good, bad, uh, I think, dichotomy that Robin referred to yesterday. It's either or in the way we talk about in society. Well, how do you reconcile that with this? I mean, I know that you all don't make this many mistakes, but like, but. How, do, how, how can I be, be a good person who's free of bias and mistakes? And I'm going to argue as I walk you through the science that it's scientifically impossible for you to be completely free of bias and mistakes. How then are we going to be good people? The definition we've created for ourselves that good people are not this and because we're this, the dichotomy puts us in such a tight corner such as to be impossible to meet. So let's pair that with a fixed mindset. I, I'm a fixed mindset because aren't we all supposed to be good people? Isn't that something that you don't have to learn? Don't you not need grid lines to be a good person, especially as a fully formed adult? Isn't that the kind of thing that just is? So if I'm free of bias and mistakes, and it just is, and then you've got my PowerPoint slide of mistakes, where does that leave me? What do I do when I make mistakes? Remember all the answers y'all gave me? I pretend I didn't do it. I, I, I say that you're, you're taking things too seriously. I ignore it. I shut you down. I mean, I'm talking about me. I do all of these things. Here's the alternative. 
I heard someone just say growth mindset. Thank you for that. So a growth mindset, which you're already really familiar with and you've generated examples about, is what I call being a goodish person. A goodish person is still making mistakes, but is learning from them, getting better, taking ownership for them, noticing them when they occur. And so a goodish person, I want to be super clear here because there's some, you know, there's been some media coverage of my stuff and sometimes it's, it's been portrayed as, let's give ourselves some slack. I, I wouldn't phrase it, I get the instinct behind that, but that's not what I mean. I'm actually saying let's set a higher standard for ourselves. Let's set a higher standard that, remember when you said we persist, we learn from our mistakes, that a goodish person is actually a higher, more powerful standard to set for ourselves, but perhaps, perhaps a more exhilarating one. As I floated around and listened to some of your examples of your growth mindset, do you mind sharing what yours was? Yeah. I grew up in Mexico City and did classical ballet, so the outdoors wasn't my world. But I um, went through something in my 20s where I felt I needed to just get out of my comfort zone, and I decided to uh, try hiking. So I went to Knowles and took a course and went on a two-week backpack hiking trip after never having taken ever a hike. And from there, I got a woofer certificate, wilderness first responder, and then led six weeks of uh, a trip in the um, rainforest and was responsible for all the health of the adolescents. Oh my gosh. I mean, am I right that that sounds exhilarating? Right? So that's what a growth mindset offers. I mean, that, that's a good pitch for a growth mindset. Right. So is goodish a higher standard than good? Absolutely. Does it have a lot of payoff in it in addition to the learning? Absolutely. We just heard a perfect example of it. Now, here's why I'm gonna, a few of you right now, I think, are asking a really legitimate question of, what's this I can't be free of bias? I don't buy it. And I'm gonna now try to convince you that that's true from a scientific standpoint, and that doesn't mean we don't stop working at it, it doesn't mean we don't own our own bias. Here's why. We're gonna do this together. We're gonna do the colors, you're gonna say them, if, if you're able to perceive color, if you're not, that's cool, just, just hang with me. We're gonna just say them out loud as a group, so for example, it'll be like green, red, purple, like that, and you'll just follow my, my clicker. Here we go. Green. Keep going. Some of you are still going, oh my God. All right, all right, stop, stop. Some of you were not gonna quit. We were here all day. What happened? Mixed messages I'm hearing. So in fact, this is called the Stroop task. Some of you may have seen it before. Cognitive psychologist Stroop created it. He was showing what happens when two competing automatic responses hit in your head. From an executive function standpoint, you have two competing dominant responses. In this particular case, if you're able to perceive color, that was a quickly, within milliseconds, perceived stimulus. And because of a teacher somewhere, if you're able to perceive letters and symbols as words with meaning, 
And you're, in other words, you're able to read. That is two, an automatic response that happens within milliseconds, and those two collided in what you exp experienced here, so that your response time was slower on the second slide than the first. Now, let's take that in conjunction with the knowledge that every instance, right there, every instance, some scientists have estimated 11 million pieces of information are entering your brain. 11 million. I mean, right now, you can perceive the temperature in this room. You can perceive what I'm saying. You somehow know you should be sitting, not lying down. You are able to know who's sitting next to you. You're able to perceive colors and temperature. All of this is somehow being processed in your brain simultaneously, but outside of your awareness. 11 million things are being processed outside of your awareness. Scientists estimate about 40 pieces of information every instant are being processed within your awareness. So 11 million 40, how does the brain do that? It relies on shortcuts. It relies on shortcuts that are systematically helpful in doing a lot of that work when your brain is in low power mode to do everything in the background so that you can focus on a few things in the foreground. The only problem is that those shortcuts sometimes lead to mistakes. That those shortcuts can lead us to, for example, if you, if you uh, work somewhere where you drive home after work and you've had a busy, busy day, which I'm sure you, you pretty much always do, and you get home, you walk in the door, and you realize you don't remember the drive home, like at all. Whether you had a green light or a red light, you don't remember. Autopilot, right? That's the 11 million. It just did the work. It got you there. It can also happen that like you open the door of your fridge and you look for the butter, and there's no butter, and who finished the butter, and why didn't anybody put butter on the grocery list so that we knew to bring butter, and there's no butter. And then someone who lives with you is like, the mom, the butter's right in front of you the whole time we had butter. That the brain, when it's doing this work, can sometimes really miss things. And so when that's happening, when that level of automaticity is happening, it's capturing what um, is known as bounded rationality. This might be a term some of you have heard. It's uh, a Nobel Prize winning idea that has subsequently led to three Nobel Prizes. This is Daniel Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize. His book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was one you might be familiar with, where he outlines the systematic patterns in the errors our mind makes, the bounded rationality, because our mind, the, what they've shown, has limited storage resources, limited processing power, and so sometimes when you go to buy cereal at the grocery store, you're going to make irrational decisions because your mind is being drawn by the wrong things. Or sometimes when you're deciding, um, you know, when you're opening a school, a new school, or you're starting a new curriculum and you're putting a lot of money into it, you're going to sink too much. When you should have pulled back and stopped investing, you're going to escalate your commitment because that's another predictable mistake that our minds make. Once we've made some investment, we continue making investment. The work that I've done with my colleagues says that if, if it's true that our mind, our bounded rationality is going to lead to some predictable mistakes, isn't it also true that when it comes to what joke to tell or who to hire or what disciplinary action to take, it's the same brain working with those limited resources. It's the same brain that doesn't see the butter. It's the same brain that has 11 million and 40. Isn't it possible that same brain might sometimes make mistakes? Isn't it possible that our intention and impact might be different? And so is it possible then that there might be things that we know 
that just aren't so? Is it possible that there's things that we don't see that might be right in front of us? That's the spirit of the work that's been done for about the last, I would say, 25 years about the implicit association test. Can you see a show of hands if you've taken the implicit association test? It's also called the IAT. So I'm thinking about like a third. So I'm going I'm to re review for those who are familiar and, and introduce for those who aren't. The IAT is a way to measure what we call implicit or unconscious bias. In a brain, 11,040,000, bounded rationality, bounded ethicality, in that kind of brain, we need a different way to find out what our attitudes and stereotypes are other than just asking someone. If I were to give you a survey and say, what do you think of gay people? What do you think of black people? What do you think of women? And ask you on a one to seven scale to fill out, you know, the surveys we're all so familiar with filling out, it's possible that I would get, even if you swore to me you were answering honestly, that I would get the response that represents the 40 and not the 11 million. The 40 and not the 11 million. So the question for us as psychologists is how do we measure the 11 million part of our brain? So the IAT is a measure, not a perfect measure, but a really well-studied, well-tested, highly improved measure that allows us to do it. If you want to take it, it's free, it's anonymous. You go to implicit.harvard.edu. You do not need to register. You skip anything that says email address. Just go right to go as a guest. And what you do on the IAT is within about a 10-minute, you need uninterrupted 10 minutes. And I know I just lost most of you with that. But you do need an uninterrupted 10 minutes where you can do this task on your computer, and it's going to feel a lot like a video game. What you're going to do while you're taking the task is quickly categorize. So I'm just going to, you don't, if this part doesn't make sense, it's fine. For those who've taken it, I want to make sure they, they uh, know what the why was behind the measure. You're going to be asked to categorize things in the middle of the screen into four, one of four categories. And then the categories are going to kind of flip. See how these categories represent one set of, uh, kind of valences for black and white, and these represent the opposite. The idea is going to be if we measure you at millisecond speed, something like 200, 300, 500 milliseconds, that's less than a second, of course, which, which of these would be easier for you to categorize if black and good are paired together or if white and good were paired together? For example, if I say peanut butter, you say, wasn't that fast? That was uh, 323 milliseconds that your response, it wasn't really, I just made that up. But, but that fast is what we're getting, the peanut butter jelly level response. Now peanut butter and jelly is an association you have in your mind that I didn't teach you and you probably don't know the moment you learned peanut butter and jelly is being associated. And what the IAT is trying to do is find out what are the, oopsie, oh that's a good screen actually. What are the associations that we've got in our brain that have come from some external source in the culture we live in that have become the equivalent of peanut butter jelly. That if I'm faster at associating peanut butter with jelly than peanut butter and mayonnaise, which I did have someone once tell me that that's good, peanut butter and mayonnaise, anybody? No, I agree. Um, if we're faster, we're trying to find out in our brains what's the equivalent of peanut butter jelly. When you take the IAT, you do this 
gazillions of times, like hundreds. That's why you need 10 minutes. You do different versions of it. You can do it on a variety of topics. What I'm showing you is the race IAT. There is a gender, there's a sexual orientation, there's a skin tone, there's a religion. It goes on and on. And they also rotate them on the website. The website is a research website. They're using the data in anonymous form to, to develop aggregate data sets. I'm gonna show you some of the results from the aggregate data sets. What it is measuring is under conditions of automaticity, peanut butter jelly, 11 million, what are the mental associations that come out? Not what you would put on a one to seven scale survey, but what you put when you don't have time to think. When we don't have time to think, what we're capturing is a learned response that Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum refers to as the smog that we have lived in. I think yesterday we also heard uh, Robin refer to it as the water we've been swimming in our whole lives. The media around us, what we've heard from our parents, what we see in the world around us, what our teachers told us growing up. And when I say told, I don't mean explicitly told. In all the questions that Robin asked us to reflect on, what was told to us simply by what was around us. In and that that captures not necessarily our truth or our explicit belief. We are not saying, to be very clear, the mental processes that we're measuring are not the entirety of our mental processes. It's not the 40. It is the 11 million. The 40 is still legit. That is still part of our truth. So it is very possible that you might have a very different explicit bias than an implicit bias. In fact, many people do on um, multiple topics. I'm going to show you some of the race data in a second. So Dr. Tatum says that the thing with smog is that sometimes it's really visible. We can notice it around us. And sometimes it's just happening in ways that we don't realize we're breathing it in. Take a moment and look around this room if you would. Take 30 seconds to just look around this room and what's the smog of this room? Okay, so share at your table. Everybody share popcorn style. Quick example of some smog you noticed. Thank you so much. Apologies if you didn't get to everyone. Raise your hand if you heard an example at your table you had not noticed yourself. You heard it from someone else. Did anybody get here an example they hadn't come up with themselves? So the smog is not always sitting visible for us, but it's shaping our implicit associations. What I'm going to show you on the next slide are the, is a histogram, a frequency graph, that shows on the race IET specifically a sample from across the United States. We now have over 30 million people have taken the IAT. This is the people who've chosen to take the race IAT, what their results are. On this side of the graph where it's green, this means people were, had an easier time associating white with good, 
than black with good. So peanut butter jelly here was white good. On this side of the graph, people had an easier time associating black and good. This is about 75% of the test takers, all Americans across races. Sorry, you can't see it. Now I'm gonna show you people who self-identify as white. This number has now gone up to about 85%, same pattern, white good versus black good. Next I'm gonna show you people who self-identify as black. And I'm here, I heard a couple of hmm. So let me, let me go back so you can see again. This is white, people who self-identify as white. This is people who self-identify as black. What do you notice? I heard not that different. I have one hypothesis, not that different. Anybody want to challenge that? Yeah, you do? Okay, so the phrasing is that white people have a higher opinion of themselves than black people uh, have a higher opinion of themselves. Statistically, what we're seeing is a more normal distribution amongst our black subjects than our white subjects. Normal, I mean that in a statistical way, not, if, if that didn't make sense, don't worry about it. Um, I just mean it as a statistical distribution. What's, what this helps us see is the power of smog. Because it is, very reasonable to expect that any of us would show up an, 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 uh, an implicit preference for our own group. And if that were true, we would see this slide would look like a mirror image of that slide, but it doesn't. This is the power of smog. In your schools every day, you create smog, positive or negative. The smog is being created. These values are being shaped, so much so that what we know is that when the IAT was first put up on the internet, which was in, I think, 1999 or 1998, by uh, Mazreen Banaji and Tony Greenwald, when they first put it up, it went viral, but like the late 90s version of viral. Do you remember this one? <laughs> My mother still does this. Like where you forward an email and then it forwards to 20 people and they forward it to 20 people, you just get like a thread of forwarded emails. That was the viral of the late 90s. The IAT went viral, and what's really interesting is it went viral amongst educators. In 2001, I joined the lab as a PhD student where we managed the IAT website, and my job in my early years of grad school, amongst other things, was to uh, read all the emails that came into the IAT website, any questions that came in. And really consistently, people would say things like, okay, fine, you got me. Fine, but those were adult faces. I don't really like adults, that's why I teach. So show me kids, because I promise you not in my classroom. The results didn't change. Same results. Every version you can think of of that IAT has been tested. I know because I was one of the grad students who did it. We have tested every possible version. The IATs on gender, show exactly the thumbprint of the culture that you would expect them to show. Girls and women are associated with the home. Boys and men are associated with work and with leadership. Girls are associated with humanities. Boys are associated with math and science. Women show stronger implicit gender bias than men. 
both show strong implicit gender bias. Yeah, thanks. Yes, there is a version of kids. And in fact, let me see if I have the slide. When, we, when I haven't done this work, but when Christina Olson, developmental psychologist, and others have done this work, by the ages of five or six, they're showing the same implicit biases as their, as their, um, uh, the adults in their life. What's interesting about kids is it takes longer for their implicit and explicit biases to diverge. So you see that in your schools, particularly if you have younger children in your schools, where things are said explicitly that you wouldn't expect an adult to say, because as by the time you're an adult or even a middle-aged, middle school child, you know not to say that. Not because the belief doesn't still hold. Let me go back a couple of slides. Thank you for your question. And share with you a study that uh, my colleagues and I did. Katie Milkman, Madupe Akinola, and um, I decided to see if the worlds we live in, yes, I know, she's an alum of your school, right? I did. Who's saying, who's speaking? You know her? Oh my God. And she's the best of the best. So good job. Right here. Yes. Yes, she is a product of Brearley. Um, so here's what we decided to do. We work in academia and higher ed, and you might have heard that we're considered sort of the bleeding heart, liberal, liberal bastion, coddling of the American mind folks, right? So that's probably a reasonable characterization, and we wondered if in our world, these implicit biases are running wild, right? Because we're trying so hard not to have that happen. So here's a study we ran. We created email identities using names that we pre-tested to sound male sounding or female soundings, gender binary, and then white sounding, black sounding, Hispanic sounding, Chinese sounding, or Indian sounding. So if you were counting, it's about, it's two gender identities and five racial ethnic identities. If you cross them, we now have 10 identities. We came up with multiple names using databases of most popular names. We came up with multiple names for each one, so we didn't have any particular name that triggered something. So now we've got 30-some identities with an email address for each. Each of those students then emailed a professor, a real professor. So we have fictional students emailing real professors at real universities. How did we find the professors? We took the US News and Roll Report listing of the top universities. We picked the ones, all of the ones on mainland United States, and we randomly picked one professor from every PhD granting department in the country. So now we've got 6,700 professors in our database. Each of them gets one email from one of those students I just described. And that student says in perfect English, perfect grammar, very polite email, I'm really interested in your PhD program. I'm interested in applying. I'd like to learn more about your research in particular. Would you be willing to meet with me? I'll be on your campus next week. And so we sent those emails because we were interested in a, what we call a pathway that comes before the gateway of admission, right? There's a lot of measurement of gateway statistics, who gets hired, who gets admitted. I'm sure there's, to some extent, some gateway measurement you're doing in your institutions as well. But the pathways are those fluid, informal before and afters where we suspected implicit bias is especially likely to bubble. 
in my particular field of academia, those emails to professors are actually really consequential. Most PhD programs take one or two or five students total per year, and it's often driven by who faculty feel they could work with in an apprenticeship model. So it's not like an undergrad admissions process with a big admissions office, et cetera. So these emails can make a real difference. All three of us, Katie, Madupe, and I, had sent exactly those kind of emails when we were applying to PhD programs because we had been advised by people who were able to pass on this kind of knowledge that that's an important piece to this process. So it's meaningful whether or not your email gets responded to. We sent out those emails. Now, as a reminder, we've got a variety of identities, and our analysis um, paradigm was that we compared white males to non-white males. Of the students asking for a meeting next week, 87% of our white males got a response. 62% of our non-white males got a response. I had said when we started the study, we have limited faculty to send emails to. Let's not do Chinese and Indian. Let's focus where we know the problems are, Hispanic and black and white. Why are we doing Chinese? Everybody's going to want them. I'm Indian. Katie and Madupe said to me, we don't think so. Our hypothesis is the opposite of yours. Trust us, let's test it. They were absolutely right. Every group got a lower response rate than our white males in a, in a profession that's striving to be inclusive. Do I have a concrete IAT measure from every one of those professors that says that they were um, uh, implicitly showing the bias versus explicitly? No, we didn't do IATs. This is what's called an audit study or a field experiment. So it's happening in an organic way through their, they didn't even know the email they were responding to was part of a study until we debriefed them two weeks later and then they all got really, really mad and sent, <laughs> anyway, there were lawsuits threatened and that kind of thing. But anyway, everything's fine now, everything's good. Um, the point is that even those of us who are striving really hard to not show this, what is likely implicit bias, we're showing it. So can I get a volunteer to read this quote aloud? Yeah, go. I, white, what, what, what? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so we didn't see a strong gender effect. I mean, we saw a directional gender effect, but it didn't meet statistical significance. But our, but our, our hypothesis going in was just white males versus non-white males. Okay, so you're not volunteering to read, or you are? Okay, who do I got? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. That's Nelson Mandela. If any of you have read his memoir, you might remember the part where he left South Africa for the first time to go to Ethiopia. This was be long before he was in prison when he was just beginning the movement. And in that first plight, this is what he recalls of that moment. Can I get another volunteer? Thank you. You're back. Thanks. <laughs>
Thank you. I want to be clear. There is, there is a risk in showing these slides right now that we could say, well, then, I mean, come on. Then what are you asking me to do? Right? That is a possible risk. Would you agree with me that we want to fight that, that moment of fixed mindset? Is this a good moment to push through that and activate our growth mindsets? Here's one more quote. Who's with me? Yep. So Judge Mark Bennett was on Obama's shortlist for the Supreme Court. This smog is powerful. This smog sits all around us. We've talked about the kids. So the question is, what can we do to notice it? What's the work around the noticing of what's happening, whether it's in our own minds, our own schools, our own teams, our own meetings? Let's take a moment now at your tables to think about within your schools, I'm gonna focus this on race because while my, my book actually goes to a variety of biases, so I study the psychology of bias and the psychology of bias perpetuates domains outside of race, but because you've done so much work on race this week already, we're gonna stay with that theme. At your tables, can you each notice one thing in your own practices, I want to be really clear, I'm not asking you to notice anything about your faculty or your students or your parents or your donors or your boards. In your own practices, can you notice something that could potentially, potentially be revealing some implicit bias? Now, if you feel that you can't generate one on race at this moment, that's totally fine then I, I'll invite you to move to another domain. Gender would be a great place to go next. But I'm gonna ask everyone to try to generate one example. If you held implicit bias, could you notice how it might be leaking into your practices or behaviors? Any questions on what we're doing? Okay, we're at our, our small group tables.
Help me now. Am I good? Thank you so much. Thanks. So patriotism a la carte. Now, what's, what's the impact of this? Here's a really specific impact. The GI Bill. I took AP US history. I was so-so at it, but I'm pretty sure I never learned this fact about the GI Bill. The GI Bill, of course, was instituted after World War II for veterans as a way to help them re-enter society and provide for their families. Two major benefits of it were low or no-cost mortgages to buy a home and free college tuition. As a result, many of us learned that the GI Bill led to a huge spike on those two dimensions, led to the creation of the middle class in America and the creation of the suburbs. Who learned something along the lines of that? What I didn't learn, and the reason I didn't learn it is because many books don't cover it explicitly, is that those benefits were made available to white veterans, but not to black veterans. Through a whole series of mechanisms that we don't have time to cover now, but are really well documented, it's not hard to find this on the internet, it's right there. Through a whole series of mechanisms, through a variety of institutions, black veterans weren't given access to those benefits, or if they were, they had to be exceptionally lucky to get access. And as a result, we had what was this, black-white differences in home ownership and college attendance, turn into this. What's the biggest predictor if, someone goes, if someone's going to go to college? Whether their parents went to college. What's the biggest predictor if someone's going to own a home? Whether their... Is it any surprise this is what you see today? But if you don't know that history, if we have a systemic, a systemic erasing of some history because it's so hard to face it, if we have that systemic erasing, then when we see this in today's society and don't know this, can you imagine how all the implicit biases get reinforced? How the systemic biases and the implicit biases are just feeding on each other? So the noticing becomes not just, I don't know why that's like a random parenthesis, just parenthetically. <laughs> um, the noticing becomes not just what are the ways in which we potentially are carrying implicit bias, but maybe what are the ways in which we're actually barriers to the remedies to systemic bias because we don't even see them. They don't even strike us as biases. We believe so strongly in the individualism and the meritocracy, both of which Robin talked about yesterday, that when we see this, we say, well, I guess if they tried harder. The question then becomes with this the tools we're trying to take away in the fixed and growth mindset category specifically is when these systems of biases are made visible to us, how do we respond? What is our reaction? I can tell you, I sat through Robin's presentation yesterday, I had a pit in my stomach. She was revealing systems of bias that were very painful to hear, and I've read her book. That's a human reaction. The question is, is there a way to move from fixed mindset to growth mindset in those moments. How do we do that? I'm gonna offer, um, and I'm just gonna do a quick time check because I do wanna make sure we leave a couple of minutes for questions, and we will. Um, and I'm here till 8.15 and happy to continue the conversation. I've been describing something as ordinary privilege, and I know you're all very familiar with the word privilege. It's a very charged term today. Some of us 
are checking it and embracing it and other people are frustrated with that conversation, I want to talk about it in a really specific sense. We each have multiple identities right now, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, um, what's your native language, what's your national citizenship, what's your physical ability, what's your mental ability, agreed, right? So many identities. And some of them sit really salient for us and others are more in the background. Here's one that sits in the background for me. I can go months without thinking about the fact that I'm straight, like at all. I just, it, I, there's, I don't worry about, oh, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, my husband and I did this and we saw this movie or what? I don't like, oh, I, I can't remember. Do they know I'm out or as straight? What about the heterophobia? I don't have to feel threatened because heterophobia is not a thing. I, I, the world is set up for me because I'm straight. But if I wasn't straight, there are a whole bunch of things I'd have to think about. There's headwinds that would become visible to me. There's things I'd have to consider in that moment about whether it was safe to speak openly, whether it would affect my health care, my career, my physical safety, right? So the part of my identity that's ordinary, the part I don't have to think about, is also the part of my identity where I'm most likely to have blind spots. It's where I'm most likely to have tailwinds because I don't feel tailwinds. Now, some people say, I don't think I have any blind spots. I've really been thinking about it. And I say in that moment that that is your blind spot. If you think you have no blind spots, that is your blind spot. Why? 11,040,000. We know the way the brain works is you're not aware of everything. We know that. So if that's true, the work is to figure out what are the parts of our identity that we think least about. And here's why that's valuable. Study after study has shown that when people from a group speak up on their own behalf, they are penalized more than when people from outside of their group speak up. Some studies have had someone challenge a joke, a black person challenge a racist joke, versus a white person challenge the same racist joke. The black person is not taken as seriously and is viewed as whinier in the situation. These examples that cross different group categories, it's race, gender, et cetera, suggest to us that our ordinary privilege, the part of our identity we have to think least about, is also the part of our identity where we potentially have influence. Not to center ourselves, not to talk over people, not to speak for people, but to step into the conversation. That with ordinary privilege, we actually have an opportunity to first find our tailwinds, to find those blind spots, and then have the power to make change. And what that means is whatever the issue is, whether it's race, religion, gender, there is a place there to invite ourselves into a space of influence that we may not have perceived ourselves as having. Now, oops, I'm not going to go there quite yet. How are we doing on time? Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip here so that I can tell you one final story and then please start thinking about your questions because I wanna make sure we have time for those. So in my book, what I do is I curate stories and science. So there's lots of science. Some of the studies have done by uh, my colleagues and I and some of them are done by other people in economics, psychology, sociology, political science. I try to bring that science together with stories of real people. These are some of the people I interviewed for the book. And what I love about their stories is their candor. They're real people trying to figure out how to navigate a complicated world. And one of the best metaphors I heard was 
we don't assume that we can keep up with technology without effort. We know the world is changing quickly with technology and that it will be effortful to remain skilled in this area. A growth mindset would be needed. Why do we assume in the questions of diversity and inclusion that we should know how to do this? Shouldn't we have to work at it in the same way, ask for, ex ask for, ask for help, talk to experts, put effort into it in order to keep up? I love that metaphor. I want to share with you the story. There's a few famous people here, by the way. This is Jody Pico, the best-selling author. Anybody ever read a Jody Pico book? Yeah, a few of you are nodding. Um, this is Tommy Kale, the director of Hamilton. There's a few other prominent people here. Joe McNeil, you might recognize him more from these pictures. This is the Greensboro Four. The Greensboro Four, as you might remember, in 1960 were four college freshmen from North Carolina A&T who decided they were going to go to a segregated Woolworths lunch counter, sit down, politely ask to be served. They knew they wouldn't be served and that they would not get up and leave until they were arrested, killed, dragged out, or the store closed. They were not served. The store closed early that day because they didn't know what to do with them. The police showed up. Other patrons pushed cigarette butts into their arms. They tried to physically intimidate them. They sat and waited. They went home. They got more friends from their dorm, and they came back the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And as you know, the lunch counter sit-in movement spread across the country. By the end of the summer, this began in February, the Woolworths lunch counters would be desegregated. Nelson Mandela would say when he was in prison that thinking about the Greensboro Four inspired him. So Joe McNeil um, lives three miles from me. He lives on Long Island in Hempstead. And I've had the good fortune of getting to know him and have him come speak to my students at NYU. And the first time he ever came in, he's like a super humble, down-to-earth guy. If you saw him, you would, maybe you're picturing like a firebrand activist, like, you know, kind of, he's like this super down-to-earth, like tells a lot of dad jokes, like the same ones. I mean, he's like, Super low-key, very humble, and so he gives remarks to my students, the most loving, humble set of remarks. They're very moved by them, and then we open the floor to Q&A. And when we get to the Q&A, um, everything's going great until one student asks for General, he, he served in the military, General McNeil's views on gay rights. He stumbled, like, visibly. He stumbled on that question. We all kind of like, all right, let's keep this moving, moved on. The next year, I invited him to come back. I did not have the guts to ask him or talk to him about that stumble. I just, not proud of it, but I let it go. And I brought him back and put him in front of my students again. And this time, he gives his remarks, and before we even get to the Q&A, he addresses gay rights. And it's clear from his comments that he's been reading and talking to people and grappling with something. It's amazing, actually. Again, I don't have the guts to like, ask him about it, but I notice it. And then I come to the point of interviewing him for my book years later. He agrees to be interviewed. We're sitting at my kitchen table, and I finally muster up the courage to say, Joe, do you remember that moment? And he says, I do. I remember that moment. I said, what happened between year one and year two? And he said, I said, McNeil? It's time to grow up. And he shared with me a few stories that aren't in the book about what it was like when he was growing up if you were gay. And that he had let that become the smog and let those be the unchallenged views he carried. 
And when that student asked that question, he realized they were noticing something he needed to deal with. This is a man where if you go to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., the American History Smithsonian, there was an entire wing devoted to the Greensboro Four. There's an entire museum in Greensboro with a statue 10 foot tall of him. He's done more for this country than all of us combined. And yet he's finding the courage in his mid-70s to keep growing. That story inspires me because I feel like if he can keep growing, I can keep growing. If he can stumble and then stumble forward from his mistakes, so can I. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.